So Exodus chapter 17, we are in the third week of our series that we just titled Going Places. And if you haven't been here or if you've missed or if you've slept and you've just forgotten, for the last few weeks, last couple weeks really, we've just been following the people of Israel as God delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and we follow them into the wilderness. Okay, and so uh, that's where we were the last two weeks. That's where we continue to be this morning because Israel is still going places. Uh, they're going to go to a new place today that we're going to look at. But before we do that, let me recap a little bit uh, where we've been the last couple weeks. All right, Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the end of Exodus 15. And the, the setting was Egypt, or I'm sorry, Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. Uh, they crossed over the Red Sea. They just had kind of like a, a worship service of sorts. Uh, singing and, and celebrating what God had done. Uh, and then God delivers them into, uh, out of Egypt, but into this place of, of need, into the wilderness. Right? The first, day, first place they come to is a place called Mara. And if you were here, you know uh, that it's about three days into their journey into the wilderness, they began to get thirsty. And so uh, they come to this place called Mara, and there's water there, but the water's bitter. They're not able to drink it. It, it won't sustain them as it is. And so through this miraculous, supernatural event, God... Uh, works through Moses to turn the bitter water sweet. Uh, the people of Israel drink that. It sustains them. Okay, and then last week they set out from that place. Actually, they stop at a place called Elam first, but uh, they left Elam and they go to a place called the Wilderness of Sin. Right? That was just the name of it. It's not, right? It wasn't sin like S-I-N, although they did sin. They grumbled, complained uh, against God. And they came to the Wilderness of Sin and what they found is they needed uh, food. They accused Moses and Aaron of bringing them into the wilderness and and letting them die of starvation. They looked back on their days in Egypt and they said, hey, at least when we were in Egypt, we had food to eat. We ate uh, meat and bread to the full. And so God, in in his patience and his kindness with uh, a a grumbling, complaining people, he provides manna for them, quail and manna, to to sustain them. That's what he would do for the next 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. He gave them bread uh, to eat so that they would be full just like they were in the days of Egypt. And so uh, this morning we, we pick up right where we left off. I'm going to have to yell here in a minute. Okay? Uh, we, we pick up right where we left off. And uh, <laughs> the people set out from the wilderness of sin and they arrive at uh, the, the place uh, called Rephidim. All right, and this is going to be uh, a, a place where the Lord is going to again test his people. So let's read it, Exodus chapter 17. Let's look at the first seven verses. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. 
And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So here we've got right, third week in a row, third, uh, third week in our series, we've got a new place, right? and we've got uh, a change in the setting, and we've also got a change in the circumstances. Right? They uh, leave the wilderness of sin, they, uh, or at least move out from it, uh, and they move into this place called Rephidim, which is a, means uh, a place to stay or a place to rest. Right? That's what the word Rephidim means. But uh, what we see here pretty quickly is it's not a place that the, the people of Israel uh, seem to be very content to stay. Right? They, they arrive and all of a sudden they realize, hey, once again, we don't have any water. Okay? And, and, but here's what I want you to see is that even though they've arrived at this place and, and they don't necessarily want to stay there because there's a need there, uh, remember, it's, it's like they didn't get there on their own. Right? They, uh, they didn't get there by uh, the way that I like to travel, which is I almost, almost always refuse to use GPS. Anybody else? Right? I, like I think I have a pretty keen sense of direction. It works most of the time. All right? I fa- Listen, every time I found my way back home eventually or found my way to where I'm going eventually. Right? Sometimes my wife gives me a hard time. She's like, why don't you just pull up the GPS? I'm taking the long way. It's biblical. Remember Israel in the wilderness? Okay. So, they, but they, like, they don't get there on their own. Like, they have a GPS of sorts. Right? They have God leading them. That's what the text says. So they set out, they left the wilderness of sin, and they arrived at Rephidim according to the commandment of the Lord. Right? It, was, it was God who's guiding them in the wilderness. It's not even Moses who's guiding them. It's God, right? cloud by day. It's what we just sang about, pillar of fire by night that leads them to where he wants them. So this place, Rephidim, a place to stay, a place of rest, even though it's not where uh, they wanted to be, maybe not where they planned on being, they didn't like chart out their journey and say this is going to be uh, our stop for this leg of the, of the tour in the wilderness. Right? This is exactly where God wanted them. Right? Because it's God who's leading them through the wilderness. Right? So, uh, once again, he, he leads them to this place, and it's, it's a place, uh, like every stop so far, it's a place of testing. It's a place where the people of God are going to learn how to uh, rely on, depend on, trust God to provide them with the things that they need. And so here's the test, right? Once again, they find themselves in a place of need. It's there at the end of verse 1. There was no water for the people to drink. So if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that this is nothing new for the people of Israel. Right? At this point, they're accustomed to arriving somewhere and showing up and realize, like, hey, there's something missing here. There's something that we need, right? Week one, it was water. They didn't have it. It was bitter. Uh, we relied on God to, or they didn't rely at first, but they counted on God eventually to turn that bitter water sweet so that it would sustain them, right? Last week, it was the wilderness of sin. They were hungry. They needed bread. God supernaturally provided that for them, right? So here they are in 
this new place, new setting, but, but similar circumstances, there's a need that they need God to meet. Right? And it's almost as if God just takes, like he's put, he, this is a test, right? It's almost like, though, he's, he's looked back on the last two weeks, the last two chapters, and he's like, okay, you struck out at Mara. You struck out in the wilderness of sin. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, we're going to put the ball on the tee for you, right? So here's, the, you, you, you got another need, right? And you've seen me provide this need for you before. It's water. We, we did this a couple weeks ago, guys. Remember this? Okay. He sets the ball on the tee, and he's like, you're going to, you're going to get it this time, right? You're going to learn that I will provide for you, right? You're going to trust me. And here's what happens, right? Look at verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. All right, so, so God sets the ball on the tee, and, and what does Israel do? They just miss, man. Right? They're like the kid at the, the tee ball game that, that even though it's a stationary ball on a stationary tee, like they can't seem to hit it. You know what I'm saying? You got, I'm, if that's your kid, I'm sorry. Okay, but I'm just like, it's, it's not moving. You should be able to hit that. Right? Israel should have seen. Right? They look back. God has provided for us. God has sustained us. God has given us what we need. Here we are in another situation in which like, we can rely on, trust on, depend on God to, to sustain us, to give us what we need the most. And they just whiff on it. Right? They, they just whiff. And so uh, Moses says to them, all right, second half of verse 2. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? All right, and it's, it's here in, in these two verses, or these two questions, I should say, that, that Moses kind of sets up really the, the two central themes in this passage, the two central themes that we see here at uh, Rephidim, uh, and that's quarreling and testing. Right? In, in fact, he's going to go on, uh, here in just a minute, uh, or we actually just read it in verse 7, this place is going to be named uh, uh, Meribah, I've got it backwards, Masa and, and Meribah, which means, translated as quarreling and testing. Right? These are the, the central themes here. And so uh, first Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Right? Notice the sort of horizontal emphasis on Moses' statement. Right? looks at the people of Israel and they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're quarreling. He says, hey, why do you quarrel with me? Right? Up to this point, right, all along our journey through the wilderness so far, despite the fact that they've seen God leading them in uh, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, they have saw all his works in Egypt that he did through Moses, right? they've seen it's, it's God doing this, and yet every stop they bring their complaints, their grumbling, they're murmuring, and now at this point, they're quarreling. They bring it to, to Moses and Aaron. Right? When they were thirsty, they complain to Moses and Aaron. When they're hungry, they complain to Moses and Aaron. Whenever they're thirsty again here, they complain to Moses. Right? It, it was Moses and Aaron that they accused of bringing them out of Egypt to, to watch them die in the wilderness. Right? But it's, it's not Moses and Aaron that are ultimately leading them. Right? It's, it's God. 
Moses in and of himself doesn't have any sort of power to lead, provide for, sustain this people. All of Moses' works were, were God working through him. And yet the people look to Moses and expect Moses to provide what he cannot provide. And the result is quarreling. Right? Israel was expecting Moses to, uh, to, to give what, what he could not give. And, and listen, we fast forward to the 21st century, right? This is the heart of quarreling. Right? It's expecting from someone else, horizontally, it's expecting from someone else what only God can really give you. Like that's at the root. Of, we, could, we could trace this out. I even, I got some examples, right? Like here's how, here's how James puts it. All right, let me read it. If you want to turn there, you can. If it's not, it's on the screen. This is, fast forward to the New Testament. This is how James writes about quarreling. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, James's point, and we see it here in the people of Israel, is that at the root of our quarreling is some unmet, unfulfilled desire. Right? And, and rather than taking these desires to God and saying, hey, like, I, I need you to, to work in this space. Oftentimes what we do is we, we look to other people to fill the desires that only God can fulfill. And so, just to make it really practical, you want to know what's at the, at the root of most of your arguments with your spouse? Is, is you're looking for, uh, like you have a desire to be loved, to, to feel secure, that ultimately your spouse cannot perfectly fulfill. Because I don't know if you know this or not, your spouse is not perfect. Okay? And so do you look to an imperfect person to fulfill some sort of internal desires in you that, that they can never perfectly fulfill. That's where quarreling and fights and division comes from. Now, you want to know what's at the root of, of the quarreling and, and fighting with, with your kids. It's again expecting something from them that only God can provide. It's, it's looking to your children as, as a source of identity when when ultimately you should be finding your, your identity uh, not as a, a parent of your children, but as a child of God. Right? You, you want to know what's underneath uh, the quarreling with your employer or your coworkers. Right? It's, it's looking to them to fulfill some sort of sense of, of meaning and significance in your life that they can't ultimately fulfill. Right? Only God can do that. Okay? Or... Let's, let's, get out of the, let's get out of the practical and let's go to the theoretical. Let's pretend we're not a perfect church. Some of you guys caught it. All right? You want to know what causes quarrels and fights and divisions in the church? It's when you look at other imperfect people, whether it's a pastor, a staff member, a deacon, a leader, a teacher, or the men and women that you sit around every Sunday. It's when you look to those people to fulfill uh, the deepest desires of your soul that only the Spirit of God can fulfill. 
That's where quarrels and divisions and fighting, even in the church, happens. That's at the, the root of it. It doesn't mean we don't want to try to minister to and, and care for one another. It just means like we're limited and imperfect in our capacity to do so. I know we could follow uh, that thread in, in just a million different ways, but, but underneath all of our quarreling, underneath Israel's quarreling here in uh, Exodus 17 is, is this expectation placed on someone to be something or to provide something that they'll never be able to ultimately provide. That's at the root of quarreling. And this is where Israel found themselves expecting from God or expecting from Moses what only God could give to them. Right, but again, we said it's quarreling and testing. So let's look at testing. Right? That's what Moses' second question was. He looks out at the people of Israel and says, not, not only why do you quarrel with me, but why do you test the Lord? Right? This, this place, Rephidim, is supposed to be a place, it is a place, where God leads Israel to to test them that they might uh, learn, have this opportunity to, um, to rely on Him, to depend on Him, to, to, to remember how He's provided for them in the past, to trust Him to provide in this moment and moving forward. Right? But instead, Rephidim becomes a place where, where Israel sort of flips the script and according to Moses, it says they put God to the test. Right, that's Moses' question. Why do you test the Lord? That word test or testing, like it contains within it this, this idea of a, of a trial. Right, there's um, th this instance here in Exodus 17. There are several passages in, like, on down the line in the, in the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, that look back at this moment. And they refer to this moment, they use the Hebrew word uh, that it's it looks like rib. It's pronounced reeb, right? and that word uh, literally means it's like a lawsuit. So when the, the writers, the authors of Scripture look back on this moment, in Exodus 17, they refer to this uh, almost as like the people of Israel, um, like filing a lawsuit against God for his failure to to meet their needs. Right? That's at the heart of Moses' question. Why do you? Why do you test God? And it's at this place where they, they essentially put God on trial. And here's their first charge is in verse 3. So the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Even though their charge is directed to Moses, remember, we talked about this last week. This is ultimately a charge against God. And it's God who delivered. It's God who sustained. It's God who provided. So any accusation they make against Moses is really an accusation against God. So their, their first charge is that, uh, right, God, why'd you bring us out here just to kill us, to watch us die? Right, and then they add another charge to it. If you jump down to the end of Verse 7, it says that the people of Israel uh, tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? It's, I mean, and remember the cloud. Remember the fire. They've got these evidences of God's presence with them. Right? Tangible, like physical, 
tangible reminders. Like they can look and see this is God with us. This is God leading us to where he wants us to go. And yet their charge against him is, is, is God even with us? Right, this is like a, a blatant contempt for the guidance and leadership of God. Right, so this is the, the charge they bring against God. This is their testing. They set up a trial and effectively they, they've accused God of failing to provide for them, failing to protect them, and failing to be present with them. Those are their charges against God. And so understandably, right, Moses looks at this people, it's like, here we are again. Right? What should have been third time was a charm. They figured it out, here we are again, third week in a row, third chapter, not week for them, it's week for us. It was a longer period for them, but you know what I'm saying. Right? Third chapter in a row. Here's this opportunity for them to, to realize God will provide, God will sustain, to cry out to him in dependence, and instead, they've put God on trial. And so understandably, man, Moses is like, he cries out to God. That's what it says in, in verse 4. Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? Right, I, I, this is conjecture, but I imagine Moses is kind of like off on his own, and he's just like, God, what am I supposed to do with them? If you're a parent, you've prayed that prayer before, right? What do I do? What do I do with these people? Like, I, I cannot make them happy. I do not have what it takes to provide, to sustain them. They grumble, and they're angry, and they're upset. There's nothing I can do that's right. You're going to have to do something, God, because they are literally going to kill me. That's, like, it's, that's what he says, right? That's my translation, but it's, he, right, Moses cries out to God and says, hey, they are going to stone me. In other words, God, you're going to have to do something here. Now, I was reading about this this week, and some scholars and theologians and people that are far smarter than I am, they think that this is uh, actually a little bit of Moses' grumbling like, like on his own. Like he's kind of reached that peak where he's like, I've had enough. Again, that spot that most parents get to at some point. Right? And they, they actually say that this is Moses grumbling, maybe you know, kind of falling into sin of his own. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what the motivations of Moses' heart were in this moment. But, but what I do know is that even in his desperation, he cries out to God. And God answers. All right, so I'm, I'm inclined to believe that, uh, that, that in our moments of desperation, even in our moments of frustration, even in our moments of anger, and there's still an invitation to cry out to the Lord. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say I think the Lord delights to hear the prayers of his desperate people. And because that's what happens here. Moses cries out to God, says, God, you're going to have to do something here. They're going to kill me. And so God responds. I'm going to read verses 5 through, I guess, verses 5 and 6. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, notice what God says here, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, 
and the people will drink. It says that Moses did so in sight of the elders of Israel. Right? The, the people of God, or the people of Israel put, put God on trial. Right? And this sort of spiritual amnesia. Uh, or if you have young kids, this would be what Dory calls short-term memory loss. Right? They, I, I, know who has, I know who's seen the movie because I got a few chuckles. I was wondering how that one would go. But, okay. um, but in their sort of spiritual amnesia, they, they've forgotten how God has provided and sustained. They've accused him of failing to provide, of failing to protect, of failing to be present. And, and how does God respond? The same way he's responded all along. Right? At the rock, he announces his presence. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm still here. That's what he said to Moses. He said, hey, I will stand before you on the rock. He announces his presence to Moses and the people of Israel. And then he, he through Moses' actions, through Moses' obedience, he, he strikes the rock and he provides water to satisfy and sustain his people once again. So I mean, just trace this, right? For the third week in a row, for us, the third chapter in a row, the Lord supernaturally responds to his people, right? He supernaturally provides for his people despite their grumbling, despite their complaining, despite their accusations, Right, despite their, what we talked about a little bit last week, despite their rebellion against God, he still supernaturally acts to provide for them, to, to meet their needs. And so in, in one sense, the last three chapters uh, of the, that we've looked at in the book of Exodus, they serve as this reminder that, that God is a God who, who provides for his people, who sustains his people. It's a reminder that we can trust God as in his ability to do those things. Right? But, but even more than that, I would contend that the last three chapters, the last three weeks have served to highlight the Lord's goodness, his faithfulness, right? his patience, despite the impatience and the faithlessness of his people. Right? It, it highlights not only that God provides, but that he's a God who, who acts almost like to people who don't deserve it, right? People who don't deserve for God to act. They grumble and they complain and they question and they doubt. And yet God still is faithful. He still provides. And he is patient. And I would contend that, that all of this, the last three weeks, they kind of encapsulate a larger uh, sort of segment of the, the Exodus story, right? These three accounts of, of the people grumbling and God complaining, right? It, I would contend that, yes, these are historical events that really happened to the people of Israel after they left Egypt, but I would also contend that, that all of this points forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, so, I mean, here's what I'm getting at. The Bible, okay, this book tells one story, right? It's 66 books, letters written by a variety of authors, but it all tells one story of God's redemptive plan, right? From Genesis to Revelation, one story all the way through. And at the center of that story 
is Jesus Christ. Right? He is the culmination of God's redemptive plan. Right? Like he is the central point, the central figure, the central character. And so we've got to read the Bible as, as if Jesus is central. And so the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, points forward to the day when Jesus would come, ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many, to save God's people. And the Old Testament points forward to that day. You get to the New Testament, you've got the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are all about Jesus' life. Right, his life, his death, his resurrection, his teachings. In the book of Acts, and that's uh, and what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection, how that message spreads into uh, the known world at that time. It, it recounts that. And then you get to the letters of the New Testament. Right? All the epistles written, a lot of them by Paul. Uh, all those talk about what it means to live, uh, put your, your faith in Christ, how to live as one who is a follower of Jesus. And then you get to the book of Revelation. And it's just this reminder that the Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again, who ascended to the Father, is one day coming again to take his church to himself. My point is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And, and Exodus 17 is no exception. In fact, here's what, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, but he's looking back on, on what we just read from Exodus 17. Here's what he says about it. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. All of Exodus 17 that we just read, all those events at, at Massa and Meribah, in, in Paul's mind, reflecting back on these events that happened centuries before, Paul says, hey, all of that served as a foreshadowing to Jesus Christ, what Jesus would come to do. And so let me tease that out a little bit, right? In Exodus 17, at the rock that Moses strikes and the water comes down, right? Just as God made his presence known at the rock by standing before Moses, before the people, just as God made his presence known there, God ultimately made his presence known in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Right? That's Jesus is God incarnate. He is God wrapped in flesh. Right, the Old Testament prophesied Jesus and said his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He is present among his people. In Colossians 1, Paul writes that, uh, that, that Jesus is the uh, image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And in, the author of Hebrews says that, that, that Jesus is the uh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. It is Jesus who is the culmination of God's presence with His people. Right? And then look at this. Just as, just as the water was struck to provide, I'm sorry, this is the rock was struck to provide water 
to sustain and satisfy uh, the, the people of God. Right? Jesus was also struck to satisfy us, to, to fulfill uh, our deepest need and our deepest desires. Right? He, was, he was betrayed. He was arrested. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified. He was killed, struck, in order to provide us with what we need the most, the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. I mean, the, the water from the rock at Meribah, it sustained the people for a little while, right? Gave them life for a little while, but, but Jesus, the rock, gives us what will sustain us in eternal life. Right? It is Jesus who is the ultimate culmination of God's provision for His people. He satisfies our deepest need, and that is to be reconciled to a holy God. Right? And then just as the rocket Meribah served as a reminder that God protects His people, right? Jesus brings ultimate protection for all who trust in Him. Right? These are Jesus' own words in John chapter 10. He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Right, just as the, the rock was a reminder of God's protection for his people, Jesus is the ultimate picture of protection for God's people. Right, it's Jesus that saves. It's Jesus that keeps and holds. It's Jesus that sustains us. Right, so just as Paul wrote, Jesus is the rock, the only rock that will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. So here's, here's where we'll put a bow on it this morning. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, right, I just want to reorient your heart and your mind and your life around the reality that, that what you need more than anything is Jesus. Right? What you need more than anything else in this world is Jesus. Right? It, it's not like you place your faith in Jesus and then you move on to like the good stuff. Like Jesus is the good stuff. I almost said Jesus was the top shelf stuff and then I was like, that might get me in trouble. But then I just said it anyway, so I'm already in trouble. Okay? See how the meeting goes tomorrow. In, like, listen, the Christian life, Christian growth, spiritual maturity, like all, all that it is, I mean, it's oversimplification, but it's just growing in a greater need and awareness and dependence of your need for Jesus. Right? That, that's what it is. Right? I, I've been doing this for a while, and, and as I've progressed, I've just, it's like the more I lean in and the more I press in, the more I'm just like, Oh, dear Lord, I need Jesus. Like, that's what spiritual growth is. It's, it's growing an awareness of how little you actually have it together. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to reorient your heart and mind around that. Like, what you need more than anything is Jesus. And so, to, to 
to press into that. I just want to encourage you to give your life to whatever it is that enhances, increases your affections for Jesus. Because right? that's what you need most. Right? And I would, I would also encourage you to, to whatever it is that robs your affection for Jesus, I mean, you need to, to, to eradicate that from your life. Right? To, to put those things to death. Because what you need most is Jesus. And then if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I, I try to say this every week, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Right? I actually don't think it's by accident that you're here. But I also want to tell you that what you need most is Jesus. I, mean, I would just plead with you. Come to Jesus. And you, you can pursue a million other things in this world in hopes that they will satisfy and sustain you. But they're all empty. They're all temporary. They're not eternal. Jesus has come that you may have life. You may have life uh, abundantly or, or life to the full. So I'll just plead with you this morning. Come to Jesus, the rock who sustains and satisfies the deepest needs of your soul. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you. Um, we just ask this morning that my prayer is just that you would reorient us around our, our need for you. Lord, that we would see that, that it is Jesus the gift of Jesus Christ alone that satisfies. Just as you satisfied the, the people uh, at, at Massa and Meribah with water from the rock, I just pray that we would get a greater uh, awareness, a greater knowledge of how uh, you satisfy and sustain us ultimately through Jesus. And so for those of us here in this room that man, we've tasted and we've seen, maybe as we've progressed uh, through life, we've just become a little apathetic or complacent. I just pray that you would and remind us that it's Jesus alone that satisfies it. That we don't, we don't need to move past that or beyond that. We need to move deeper into it. So Lord, I, I pray that you would give us a craving to know more of Jesus, to love him more, to follow him more, to to obey Him more. And if, Father, if there's some here this morning that maybe they've never trusted in Jesus, they, they've never experienced that satisfaction that comes through Christ alone, I, I pray that you, would, that you would prompt them with that this morning. I, I pray that you would, Lord, by your Spirit, open their eyes to see that it's Jesus alone that satisfies, that the pursuits of this world may satisfy for a season or for a moment. Uh, but, but they're ultimately empty. I pray that you would, you would help those that might be among us this morning to see that, that it's Christ alone that satisfies and that you, would, um, or that you would move them to respond in faith to the invitation. It would help them to, to see Jesus for who He is as the one who lived the perfect life that could not live, who died in the place for them as their substitute to satisfy 
the penalty of sin. And I pray that they would respond in faith. I pray that you would plant seeds this morning. and uh, Lord, Lord, that those might spring up in, in time. But we love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.